Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Organisations like Reason, the Reason Party, which I, I tend to see more of a movement than a political party. You know, we're not, I don't want to be the Labor Party. I don't want to be a big party when I grow up. I want to be a coalition of like-minded people that come together under an umbrella of reason, an umbrella of evidence, an umbrella of compassion. And that's what I, I hope that that's how we see the future of politics, that, you know, that I'm not the only person that votes, that, that my vote is a conscience vote. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse. If you're looking for an elite digital agency to handle your full suite of digital needs, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Fiona Patton, MP. Fiona is a leader of the Reason Party, formerly known as the Australian Sex Party, was first elected in 2014 and then re-elected in 2018. She's a member for the Northern Metropolitan Region in the Victorian Parliament's Legislative Council. I'll leave you to do some desktop reading on Fiona, but just want to flag some of her incredible achievements since entering Parliament, including establishing fertility clinic safe access zones from protesters, legalising Uber and other ride-sharing services, securing a trial for Victoria's first medically supervised injecting centre, appointed chair of a review into the decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria, and established a parliamentary inquiry into the legalisation of cannabis. This is a great and wide-ranging conversation with Fiona, where we hear about her fascinating and unusual journey into politics. We hear about how Fiona has been able to become a key power broker and kingmaker in the Victorian policy-making arena, how she's able to work collaboratively and productively across the aisle, across different interest groups and parties, and how she consults with her community to drive positive change. For me personally, I'm interested in talking to more independents within our democratic system, so this is a great insight into how smaller players can create significant groundswells of social change. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Fiona as much as I did. So I am thrilled to have you here, Fiona. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Mike. Very pleased to be here. It's a pleasure. It's the first podcast to be recorded at the Commons, which is also a big thing. I know, and this is an amazing, magical place. Yeah, shout out to the Commons. Thank you for accommodating us. So I think a good place to start would be to talk a little bit about your journey into politics. Mm. Yeah, it's. A, I guess it's not the journey that most people um, travel and... I never, ever had aspirations to be a politician. In fact, you know, probably it was the one thing I was never going to be. But in this weird kind of life journey that um, took me uh, from industrial design into fashion design, into advocating around HIV and AIDS, uh, which... That work plus my fashion work introduced me to the sex industry where I became a fierce advocate for sex workers and also worked as a worker myself. Uh, That that took me into the political realm. That was when I started to lobby and I started to want to change things and change the laws. So it's where I got politically active. And then, you know, I formed a relationship with Robbie Swan, who was an advocate for the adult film industry. 
and we formed an industry association for the adult industry and that was called Eros. So in that we kind of presented what we thought were logical perspectives on love and sex and I would lobby state and federal politicians around the country. I would travel internationally with that and I just became more and more frustrated or Robbie and I both did that while we could see community attitudes going in one direction, government policy was going in the opposite. And the final straw was really when Senator Conroy announced an internet filter. <laughs> so, you know, of course, quite quite as as is the way, the adult industry quite often is at the forefront of new technologies and the internet was no different. Um, so we... Uh, so we had been involved in in the the growth of the internet since the early 1990s and to see this just ridiculous policy um, from a, a party that was about to be in government, that was when we decided that we had to take our issues to the ballot box. And I think you probably saw that it's a clear example of the government treating us like we're all kids rather than responsible a- adults. Absolutely. Protect children by all means by every mean you can but you don't need you don't need to treat adults like children t- to do that and also i mean it, it's such a ridiculous notion to filter the internet or for governments to do that individuals can filter the internet in fact we all do now in probably not a terribly healthy way where we all <laughs> have our own bubbles now but we've uh, got a, we've got the benefit now of uh, having vpns as well so we can be kind of doing our own thing and jumping around as we please. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, by filtering the internet, by saying sort of some adult content should not be available, that in no way was protecting children from inappropriate material Um, because, you know, for children inappropriate material is a whole range of things. Anyway, that that was really the final straw. And, you know, we'd also been standing strong on marriage equality. We'd been looking at, you know, personal choice, which might have been around assisted dying, issues like that, drug law reform. So, yes, so we decided to form a political party. Again, probably not with the intention of getting elected. Um, That that probably came a few years later. So in 2010, we just wanted to take the issues to the ballot box and then, um, which we did, and we certainly didn't, we saw the end of the, the internet filter. Um, we saw things like marriage equality actually get on to the agenda. And so I think it is an, it, it was an effective way of getting some of those issues heard. But then I, I got elected in 2014. I think it's quite entrepreneurial because the way I see it, you saw a gap in the market and mm. you felt that you were reading community sentiment better than what government was. Yes. And then you put that position to the, the people and then they said, Yep, that's right. That, absolutely. And, and in fact, you know, we, we sort of started a trend. I mean, when, when the sex party was formed, there was very few small political parties. Um, two years later, there was about 30. And so we, we did show that it was a way of publicising issues. It was a way of garnering community support for issues. And, you know, while we were seen as a single-issue party, in actual fact, when people looked at our policy range, there was nothing single about it. 
It's extraordinary. Can you talk a little bit about your shift from the the sex party to the reason party and maybe a bit of the ethos behind that? Like maybe take me through some of the rationale for the yeah. change. And I suspect yeah. it's around wanting to tackle a broader range of social issues, but I'll, I'll, yeah. I won't put words in your mouth. <laughs> Thank you. Um, look, when we started the sex party, we, as I said, we, we weren't necessarily looking to get elected. We really wanted to get issues on the ballot um, paper and, and publicise those issues. So it, it, in doing that... You know, choosing a cheeky name like the sex party um, was a double-edged sword. So for some people, they couldn't look past the name and they saw the name, they thought that was ridiculous and stupid and childish and um, turned away. For other people, it sparked their interest and then they looked beyond the name and saw that we did have a fairly broad suite of policies. But it was difficult and... It was also, you know, it's it's it was challenging for me to walk around in a bright yellow T-shirt with sex emblazoned on the front and try and, you know, encourage people to take a how-to-vote card at a train, your information at a train station or, or at a ballot or at a polling booth. Um, but to then to attract other people um, to run for the sex party was, again, attra- was, was again, a challenge, and to get volunteers to do that was again a challenge. We had done well, but it was in 2016 when I'd been in Parliament for a couple of years. Uh, I'd got some runs on the board. You know, we'd done the safe access zones legislation that no one thought was possible, which was around um, prohibiting protesters at abortion clinics. We'd got voluntary assisted dying up. Was that in East Melbourne? It was it was East Melbourne, but it it applied to all clinics across Victoria. But East Melbourne was obviously the most prominent the flash one, point. and yep. it was the flashpoint. You're right. So you know that I used to um, work at the College of GPs and walk past there every day. <gasps> no, I did not. So that was the, my local coffee run was going from the GPs, avoiding the protesters, and yep. getting my coffee and coming back. And um, I, I personally, even though I you know, I was only there a year, I was very pleased to hear that they'd been moved out of the way. That was pretty egregious. It, it was. And, you know, it was it was such an affront to people and it was it seemed remarkable and, and certainly when I look back at that piece of legislation, uh, it was pretty much the first thing I did in Parliament was put up a private member's bill and I'd have to say that that was naivety that I just went, well, let's just put up a bill. And but it worked, and it worked in negotiating um, with the government. The government won't accept private members' bills. I've done six; um, none of them have passed, but the laws have passed on all six of the issues. So the same with safe access zones. I got um, got the bill up, and then the health minister said we would rather you didn't take this to a vote. And I said, well, I think I have the numbers, and I and they said we will commit to doing this. So you can essentially use the private member's bill as a negotiating tactic. That's right. So I did that for safe access zones. I did that for ride sharing. Uh, I did that for a supervised injecting centre. I did that for raising the age of -of out-of-home care. I did that for spent convictions. And I'm doing that for medicinal cannabis patients and driving. 
So I want to jump down a few rabbit holes. Yes, <laughs> I know we're going. I've been going everywhere. <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. But I, I'm curious, like, because there are so many social discrepancies between maybe community sentiment and what the government does in the mm. law. How do you decide what you're going to put your hand up for and decide? Hey, this is something that I'm passionate enough about to put a bill up. Or it's 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 a long thought. It's a long and thoughtful process, Mike and. Um, we, I get two shots a year to lead debate. And so those are very precious to me and I take those positions very seriously about what I want to achieve from them. And you're right, there are so many issues that you could raise in those, um, in those spots. And it's not the only place that you have an opportunity to affect debate and affect policy, but they're two really important ones where you lead debate. So it's something that my team and I, we from from the day we knew we were elected, we started looking at what what we wanted to achieve and in what priority. So, for example, in 2014 when I was elected and as the sex party and, you know, everyone was very titillated by this idea and, you know, oh, my goodness, you know, the sex party's <laughs> been elected and, you know, I was, had a sort of the, a media pack that kind of surrounded me. Just so, uh, like, antithetical to conventional Australian politics. That, exactly. Like, just outrageous. That's right. They were, they were just all um, outraged by it. And they were, so they, they said to me, well, well, what's the first thing that the sex party's going to do when they get to parliament? And I said, the first thing I want to do is legalise voluntary assisted dying. And they were like, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) It's not very sexy. Um, But it was. And and in that case, that was because I had made a commitment to a man called Peter Short who was dying. And he was dying, so he had no time to lose and he went straight to the point and he – he got a commitment out of me. He got a promise out of me. Now – Sadly, he died before I was elected, but um, I I was determined to keep that promise and to do what I could. Uh, but I don't know. Not that's not the normal way that we develop our policy with you know making a commitment to a dying person. But certainly, um, we it, we look at the evidence. We see where we can affect change, and and sometimes it's it might be low hanging fruit. So sometimes it's. You know, and it's my mantra um, at the moment, which is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I, so if if I can't get to over there to point B, if I can get to halfway there, if I can make some pr- progress in that area, then that that is worthwhile doing. It's, you know, it's not, you know, my way or the highway and... I, I try and that's how I negotiate and that's how I work in Parliament. And I think that's how we've managed to actually get effect, uh, be able to affect change. Yeah, and I, I think maybe also not being bound by the same complex and layered party politics mm. benefits you in a way that you can be like an honest broker of social solutions. Yep. And um, maybe just extending from that, like, what do you think have been the key things that have made you effective in uh, negotiating across the aisle? Look, I think it is the willingness to come to the table. So I'll I'll use an example that's very current at the moment, and it's about the electric electric vehicle user charge. So there's a big debate about whether electric vehicles should 
pay a road user charge. The government is introducing a bill to do that. Uh, Now, you will have the Greens and you'll have environmental groups saying, no, we can't do that. This is the most terrible thing. Now, I would argue that it's not the most terrible thing. And what can we leverage from that user charge? What can I leverage by saying to the government, okay, you want to charge $200 a year to, well, largely Tesla owners who've just spent $165,000 on their car, so I don't think it's actually going to be much of a disincentive. People in the top tax bracket anyway. That, yeah. That's right. So, yes, I you know there's the argument that it sends the wrong message, uh, but I would say the argument is let's 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 give the government some buy-in into electric vehicles. Let's get them some ownership of this. But at the same time, I can leverage my vote in there and say, right, so you're going to charge them $200. Well, I want you to waiver the, their car rego. I want you to waiver road tolls. I want you to waiver stamp duty. I want you to commit to 50% of the government fleet being electric vehicles. Then you have my vote. Um, so I think that's yeah, and I won't get all of those things, by the way. <laughs> but it it is about being at the table, so not just saying no. And whether that was the state of emergency legislation, it yeah, it was coming to the table and being and listening. And and I li- I meet with the opposition as well. I listen to them um, with their amendments, and sometimes I will support uh, amendments that they put forward into legislation. And the same with any of my crossbench colleagues, whether it's the Greens or the Liberal Democrats or, um, you know, the uh, Transport Matters Party. Um, I will listen to everyone. I won't say no to anyone um, until I've looked at the evidence, until I've spoken to the stakeholders. And I think that that ability to, to listen and to negotiate on the issue, you know, just going on for a quick second on that, I mean, I don't say to someone, I'll support your electric vehicle user charge if you build me a swimming pool, um, which has been a, a traditional way of negotiating. Mercenary style. <laughs> that's right. Yep. That's right. That's right. That real horse trading and that's and that's what we've never done. And I think that's meant that we've been able to maintain relationships um, with, with government, with opposition, with crossbench. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that you're able to adopt some pretty like um, strong positions on things that might have been seen as controversial mm. by other parts of government, and then invariably you see the government getting on board. Yeah, um, and that's maybe a good example of that is medical cannabis, and um, I'd love for you to talk a bit about what's happening in that space, um, both with respect to regulation and opening up of the industry here, and also with respect to driving and the recent sort of proposed mm. amendments around driving laws. Yeah, this. I mean, medicinal cannabis is such an exciting new area of medicine, but it doesn't fit into our, any of our existing boxes because this is a plant. So to try and treat it as a pharmaceutical product is is really difficult. It just doesn't it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. So really, we've had to start developing specific legislation and regulation around it. There's also the problem that medicinal cannabis has cannabis in the name and cannabis is also an illicit substance. Um, you know, certainly, look, you know, we, we, we hand out morphine, we hand out opioids um, oh, it's crazy. left, right and centre, even though heroin is an illicit substance. Yep. But, but cannabis is, is 
quite specific, quite special in that area. So that's been a challenge. But the opportunities for medicinal cannabis are becoming better and better understood. And in fact, the the availability of medicinal cannabis has bipartisan, multipartisan support. I don't think anyone really opposes it in government, in parliaments around the country now. But how we regulate it, how we make it available is still the disputed areas. So it's still very hard for patients to get a prescription for it and afford it. So there's still a large percentage of medicinal cannabis patients who are accessing that product illicitly and through a grey market. And then you add to that the, the our drug driving laws and Australia is unique in that we are the only jurisdiction in the world that does not allow medicinal cannabis patients to drive at all. Not not just when they're impaired, but at any time. And that has to change. It's entirely discriminatory. You can drive on opioids. You can drive on benzodiazepines. In fact, even if you have an accident and you're on benzodiazepines, there's a there's a defence in the law to say, oh well, I was on a med- I was on a prescription medicine. So I have been pushing to have this change, but. Uh, at the end of last year, I put up another amendment bill on it. The government agreed to a task force to work out not if we do this, but how we enable medicinal cannabis patients in Victoria to be able to drive when they are not impaired. And that task force has concluded the reports with the minister. And I'm hoping very soon now we will have, we'll have an outcome that's positive for medicinal cannabis patients. Just going back on something you said earlier, I mean, it, it is striking to me the opioid dependency problem we have in this country. Um, I personally last year had a big setback in June when I um, I had a prolapsed L4, L5 disc. Oh. Very uncomfortable. Wow. Um, and it was – the doctor literally said, it looks like you have a pancake hanging out at the back of your spine. Oh. So sorry to make you shiver. It yeah. was <laughs> really bad prolapse. And I just remember – after it was fixed, being discharged with a box of oxycodone, mm. and I just looked at it and thought, "What? What the? What kind of a place just gives a, a young no explanation, no advice? Just have have heroin, yeah, essentially, basically." Um, and when you think about that, and you think about how we have done very little in this country to curb alcohol cons- consumption at dangerous levels, mm. but then you've got something like cannabis, which is a plant. It's got some very, you know. The science is evolving in that space. It's it's strange how how hard we make it for people to access something that could be very good for a lot of people. That that's exactly right, and it's it's quite extraordinary that we say, yeah, here's a box of of endones or um, or any, or other forms of opioids, and and say, right, um, look, don't drive if you're not feeling great. Basically, the packet: do not drive if you're feeling dr- drowsy, mm-hmm. or do not use heavy machinery. But for medicinal cannabis, which um, is far milder on the body, has far less side effects than opioids, we say, and you can never drive. It's it's really, it's back to front. And I think we, we have some real issues with um, pharmaceutical products. In fact, I mean, our, our overdose rates... Death by overdose rates in Victoria um, are greater than our road toll. So more people die from a drug overdose in Victoria than they die on the roads by a lot. And yet 
we don't talk about that. We don't talk about how we can reduce the harm of some of those drugs. And what we're seeing in other jurisdictions is that in actual fact where there are high levels of opioid use and and death by overdose, when medicinal cannabis is introduced, even when uh, adult use or recreational cannabis is introduced, they see a marked decrease in overdoses by opioids. Because That's very interesting. Very mm. interesting. And, and another area you've done some work is around advocating for more drug testing, pill testing. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Well, I I am an absolute advocate for this, and we have pushed for it. And I have a I have a bill before the before the parliament at the moment. But now is the time. Now that the coroner has come down with a report looking at the deaths of those five men who died around the Chapel Street after consuming drugs around the Chapel Street area after they died, and the. Um, it, it, it's not the first time the coroner has called for pill testing, but this time the coroner's court was so emphatic that we needed pill testing. And we've got the ambulance, we've got numerous organisations who are now supportive of that. We've seen how it works in the ACT. We've seen the evaluations. I actually took a bunch of politicians to a music festival in England where there was, it was called Secret Garden, and it's a three-day festival. Um, we looked very out of place. It sounds fantastic. It was a fantastic place. Yep. I wish I'd, I wish I'd had other company with me, as nice as the blokes were, <laughs> but they were dressed in polo shirts and chinos, and you know, oh, just. Geez. But we saw pill testing at work, and what we saw was that this was some of the best sex uh, drug education you could give someone. In fact, the machine that went beep, the machine that tested the drugs, was almost the loss leader in this. It brought people to the tent. And from there, they got this really specific, good, honest education about their drug taking. And that was that is how you're going to save lives. Yeah, I think it's um, MAPS in America that does a lot of that work where mm-hmm. they go to the festivals, they counsel people who are having bad trips, they help them with the experiences. And, you know, I think ultimately we have to um, be adults about this and yep. realise that a certain percentage of uh Young people and adults are going to consume illicit substances. Mm-hmm. We want them to not die or to mm-hmm. have as little harm as possible occasion That's to right. them from doing that. And it just, it's just a no-brainer, I think, to you know allow people to test in an environment where they can also be educated. That's right. And look, I'm really hopeful that this year we will get a, in light of the coroner's report, that we will get some form of pilot test that it may not be a mobile unit that goes out to festivals because festivals are still a bit up in the air with with COVID, but we will get a fixed site so that you can drop substances off there um, and get the results there, either via phone or via um, you know via via some sort of um, ele- electronic communication or face to face, and we can do that at somewhere like St Vincent's Hospital that would have the spectrometers, that would have the right machinery to do the testing and then you put those drug educators in there um, to provide that just that crucial, um, that crucial, crucial uh, education at that point when someone is planning to use substances. And we know from all the studies overseas it does not increase drug use. In If anything, it decreases it. We know that those five people who died 
in Chapel Street would not have taken that substance. They would not have taken those drugs if they had known what was in them. I remember when I was a, a bit of a wayward young man and I went to music festivals mm-hmm. like the one you're describing, we would um, buy drugs, pills and alike and um, the only thing you could do to kind of guess what might be in them was to use a site called Pill Reports where you, mm-hmm. you would look, look up mm-hmm. and sort of people would give a review and yep. whatnot and if it wasn't listed there, you would just hit and hope. That's right. Um, and it, it's just a, it's crazy to think back upon you know, the things we did and, you know, what we could be doing now much better. That's right. And yep. really, and, and things like an early warning system that was that was mandated, that was sanctioned by the government so that when pills, either pills were seized or when the police picked up pills, that they were tested and that information was provided um, to, to, the, to the public would be, and in Chapel Street, we could have saved some lives because... That, that substance was actually around for a few nights and if we had picked up on it, if we had alerted people to it when we first knew that it was problematic, some people probably would not be dead today. With the medical cannabis industry, it's clearly blowing up in Victoria. I mean, maybe let's talk a little bit about the economic impact mm. of that and how that could be a really good thing post-COVID for our economy. Uh, Look, medicinal cannabis is such a brilliant plant, and I mean, and it's 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 a it's a very high return for that product. Um, Australia is really well placed to grow really quality product. Um, our our regulations around the manufacturing processes here are world class, and we we shouldn't we shouldn't lose those. What but what we do need to do is incentivize the industry. And you're right, this is a wonderful manufacturing industry because currently at the moment I think it's the majority of product that's being used in Australia is still being imported. So we we should be incentivising our medicinal cannabis industry. And on, and alongside that, when we look at um, the cannabinoid CBD, we should be looking at our hemp industry, which is another um, crop that has extraordinary potential and I would really like to see... Um, yeah, really like to see uh, the the government get behind. I'm actually on the Victorian Hemp Task Force, so um, yeah, it's 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 something that I'm that I push and seeing the benefits of CBD and being able to extract it from hemp, but but also really helping the fast growing um, medicinal industry. Fantastic! I, I think you've made some great points there. Um, I want to just shift quickly to talk about sex workers and, mm. you know, something you've been very advocating for quite strongly. What is the state of the protections that sex workers have and what are they missing currently yeah. with where we're at in Victoria? In the 1980s when our sex work laws were introduced into Victoria, we were world leaders. We were the first jurisdiction pretty much in the world that said, you know what, let's Let's give up on prohibiting this industry and trying to suppress this industry. Let's look at regulating it. And we did. And then we, we've tinkered with those laws a little bit in the 1990s. But in 2021, they are not fit for purpose. They are completely obsolete. They do not reflect the industry as it stands today. And they put workers at risk because workers now have to work outside the laws that we have 
which means that that makes it problematic for them to report violence, for them to ensure the health and their their own personal health and safety. So last year, um, during last year, the government asked me to review the laws uh, with the intention of making recommendations on how to decriminalise sex work in Victoria. I did that. I presented it presented that report to the government in October last year and the government has six, has committed to responding to that in six months. So any day now um, we will see that. But I think what we do know is that if we treat sex work as just that, as work, and we regulate it in the same way as we regulate other work, whether that's working from home as a sex worker or working from home as an accountant, um, if we regulate it, we can ensure the health and safety of people. We can ensure planning, parking, all of those things can be addressed, but they can be addressed in existing legislation. We don't need specific legislation that discriminates against sex workers. And if we do this, we can also, I think, address some of the stigma that still surrounds um, sex work and sex workers. Absolutely. Now, another thing I think you've come out um, quite strongly for is um, better regulation of Scientology and, and its assets and tax status in Australia. Um, it, it's just crazy to think, you know, the, the documentaries made by Louis Thoreau and alike about Scientology, what a wacky kind of bunch they are, but they um, they cast a very big shadow. They have probably one of the largest asset and land and property networks in the world uh, of kind of wealth concentration. Um, and they maybe only have up to 20,000 members in the US and globally maybe up to 30,000. Yeah. Um, so what, where are we at with, with that and um, why is it important to sort of clamp down? You know, again, that, that you know, Scientologists, Scientology, I mean, it's it's been questioned whether it's a religion at all. Um, but I can tell you the definition of religion in, in Australia is in the Tax Act. Wow. That's where you find the definition of religion. And, you know, all you've got to do is believe in some supernatural body and you can be a religion. It just tells you something about the priorities of religious groups. Uh, doesn't it? Mm. And when you look at what Scientology is doing, and this is just a it's, a, it's a brilliant legal tax evasion. We're like the Canary Islands for religions. Um, <laughs> you know, if you've got some, if you've got a bit of profit that you need to get rid of, lend it to Australia because an Australian religion doesn't pay any tax on it, where you might have to pay tax on it in the US or you might have to pay tax on it in the UK. And Scientologists have just been the masters of this. You know, we've seen like these tens of millions of dollars going into Australia uh, where they can buy property, where they can build ridiculously large buildings around around the country and, and it's a, effectively a loan from another country. So that solves... That country's tax, that that entity's tax problem, and we don't have a tax problem because we don't pay tax. And I've long called for tax reform around religious organisations, not charities. And to be very clear, I think charities there is a role for tax concessions and tax and tax exemptions for charities. But when you are looking at religious organisations, profitable religious organisations that are, you know, owning giant buildings, that are, you know, owning restaurants, tennis courts, whatever it is they might own, festival halls, those sorts of things. 
then really should they be tax-free? Should they have that competitive advantage when they're competing against other businesses? Um, You know, should the the Catholic Church be able to own huge swathes of, of land in Melbourne and not pay rates and not contribute at all? not pay stamp duty, land tax, anything. I I, I don't think so. Well, I think we're on um, stark agreement on that point. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I hope we start uh, taxing the hell out of the Scientologists. That would be great. Well, I think they might be the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> so once you start addressing them, then you can start looking at the other, you know, wealth religions. And you I, know, just, I just hope, Fiona, that they don't start following us because I know that, you know, in America, the, the wackies, yeah. they, they do send their people around in cars and watch. So hopefully none of that happens. Just a podcast. <laughs> it, it, just a podcast. <laughs> yes, we're not the government. Not the government. Um, but certainly I, I think these the, the Scientologists probably make it very stark how, how out of step our tax laws are when it comes to religious organisations. You know, the Catholic Insurance Company, um, which turns over millions and millions of dollars, obviously. Um, as long as they put, we're here to promote religion, they're tax free. Yeah, that's pretty crazy too. That's pretty crazy. And why should promoting religion be tax free anyway? Well, you know, feeding the poor, sure. Educating, sure. But, but promoting religion? Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I want to ask you what advice you'd have for a young person, maybe maybe a young female who's mm. considering entering politics. Um, what might you ask them to consider or um, what, what things might you say to um, promote the journey and, and the experience and maybe consider it as a pathway? Look, I think be brave. And and it doesn't take a great deal of bravery, but, but back yourself. And, you know, sure, we've all probably done things in our past that, you know, we don't want our mums to know. But that should not exclude you from public life. And, you know, I got on the front foot on that. You know, I talked about everything that might have excluded me from public life so it couldn't be used against me. Uh, But we need more young people, we need more young women in our parliaments and we need that voice because if if we're going to introduce legislation and regulations that reflect our community, then we need a proper cross section of our community in that parliament making those regulations. So I would say back, really back yourself. Feel free to come and talk to me. I'm really happy to talk to people. And, you know, it's organisations like Reason, the Reason Party, which I, I tend to see more of a movement than a political party. You know, we're not – I don't want to be the Labor Party. I don't want to be a big party when I grow up. I want to be a coalition of like-minded people that come together under – an umbrella of reason, an umbrella of evidence, an umbrella of compassion. And that's what I, I hope that that's how we see the future of politics, that, you know, that I'm not the only person that votes, that that my vote is a conscience vote, but the big parties, they vote as a block. And I don't think that's helpful. No. I don't think that reflects the people that they represent. And I know for many of them, it doesn't reflect their own personal positions. 
I think let's finish on an easy one. Mm. You are a very intense character. You're, <laughs> you do a lot and your, your passion kind of is very obvious and also yeah. your work ethic. How do you unwind and kind of switch off? What are the activities that you like to do to um, refresh yourself and rejuvenate? Look, I um, I was just I was saying to a friend, you know, there's some, on a Sunday afternoon after I'm you know, preparing for a big week, I quite often take myself to the movies and – get a glass of wine and watch a movie by myself at, at the cinema, which so I love I love doing that. Um, My mum does that. Yeah, it's it's just it's just this like your own time. It's great. And it doesn't you can laugh. I mean, I don't I don't want to talk to people during a movie anyway. Yep. So it's it's just fantastic. I'm I'm a swimmer, so I um, swim and I've also got a wildlife conservation retreat. Um, in the Brindabella Valley, and I, I, I do love going there when I can. And you get to play with animals? No, well, it's 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 a weird thing. We have a it's it's basically it's a covenant. So we we commit to trying to eradicate weeds and eradicate pests from the land, uh, and not doing anything that would uh, make it difficult for native species of flora and fauna to exist. We we call it the Funny Farm. But we've never farmed anything there in our lives, um, and it's yeah, it's largely a bush block. So yeah, I you, see. You can, tell, you can clearly tell I'm a city slicker with that question. I know, like <laughs> there's wallabies there, there's wombats, there's Beautiful. echidnas, bowerbirds, lyrebirds. Yeah, there's all sorts of things there, but they don't seem to want to play with us. Yeah, they're a bit spiky, some of them too. Oh, so I maybe know. not they, ideal. Yeah, very cute though. Yeah, very I mean, cute. but they keep running away every time <laughs> I come go to pat them, which is probably a very good thing. Survival Instinct. Hey, it's been fantastic chatting with you. I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How can our listeners uh, reach out and connect with you and learn more about your work? Look, there's my website, fionapatton.com.au, obviously on all the social medias, and the party the party is reason.org.au. Um, but I think if you just Googled Reason Party or Googled me, you'd probably find me. Yeah, fantastic. And I just want to say uh, I love how open and transparent your office has been to deal with and, you know, Great. very responsive and, you know, take it from me that if you if you write to Fiona, you'll hear back. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe not – like some people complain that I'm slow getting back to us, but – yeah, um, it'll happen. It'll happen. Be patient. It, it, yeah, that's right. Patience is a virtue. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 